I signed an order appointing Jack Smith. And nobody knows you. And those who say Jack is a fanatic. Mr. Smith is a veteran career prosecutor. Wait, what law have I broke? The events leading up to and on January 6th. Classified documents and other presidential records. You understand what prison is? Send me to jail. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 21 of Jack, the podcast about all things special counsel. Today is Sunday, April 23rd. We have a lot to cover. I'm your host, Allison Gill. And I'm Andy McCabe. Okay, so today, Allison, we're going to cover some new evidence about text messages tying the Trump White House to stolen voter data in Georgia that was going to be used to overturn the 2020 election results, as well as the potential utilization by Jack Smith of audio recordings from the Dominion defamation case against Fox. And we'll talk about how a right-wing media outlet got faced by DOJ in their effort to mine info about the Jack Smith team. <laughs> that is amazing. And I, I love that because, you know, we did an episode early on about uh, lessons learned, but like how Jack Smith is going to be so much more successful because he has the entire Mueller investigation to, to look at. Right. And that's sort of that's right. We'll talk a little bit about that. We're also going to talk about Trump attorneys making attorneys get attorneys. Boris Epstein and his long, long ass meetings with special counsel prosecutors this week, along with another Trump attorney, Evan Corcoran, uh, recusing himself or stepping aside as Trump's lawyer uh, in the documents case and what that could mean for these investigations that Jack Smith is conducting. Uh, Andy, let's start, though, with. Boris. <laughs> oh, yeah. Boris. Here we go. Now, everybody I mean, hates Boris, right? That's a new TV show this this week on Fox News. Uh, he, he has become the kind of uh, uh, Hollywood uh, bad guy figure in the whole uh, documents team slash January 6th team slash whatever else. Yeah. So check out this one-two punch that happened on Wednesday, April 19th. The Washington Post reported that Trump consultant and lawyer... Boris Epstein was going to be taking a more limited role in the January 6th case and the documents case. Not not an all-out recusal, uh, according to the sources, but you know, backbench you a little bit. And that might be because a lot of people are confused about whether or not he's legally representing uh, <laughs> Trump or whether he's a, a campaign consultant. But you know, my immediate thought was it must be because he's a potential witness in both of these cases, right? That's what happened with Evan Corcoran. And we're going to talk about Corcoran later on in the show. Uh, he quit Trump's documents legal team when he had to go in and testify before the grand jury pursuant to an order by Judge Boasberg, who said, you know, crime fraud exception, go speak. Mm -hmm. We've we've covered that pretty extensively. Uh, and like I said, we'll talk more about Corcoran a little bit later. But so April 19th, 2 p.m., Washington Post says he's taking a more limited role. Not more than two hours later, after the Washington Post story dropped, uh, New York Times came out with a story reporting that Boris would actually be meeting with special counsel prosecutors in D.C. And we didn't have a lot of information at the time whether or not he was going to be meeting with, uh, you know, um, like, was it people from the criminal division? Is it line prosecutors? Right. Is it Jack Smith? We didn't know what case it was necessarily about, although we had a feeling it might have been the documents case. But before we get into some of that, you know, speculation or, or whatever's happening here with uh, Epstein, what are the circumstances, Andy, uh, under which a person would have to meet 
the DOJ in person and talk to prosecutors versus like a subpoena? Like why? Why are sure. you bringing somebody in to to talk to you physically? What what like you know? Yep. I always think of this as a meeting that could have been handled by email. Uh, what <laughs> what's going on? So even before we get to that, just to touch on this idea of like he's kind of stepping back from the January sixth case, maybe a little bit, sort of. Um, recusal is like pregnancy. There's no middle ground. You're either pregnant or you're not. You're either recused or you're not. You're out of the case entirely or you're not. So that, to me, right off the top, sounds like a bit of a euphemism trying to cover for what is actually happening here. And then, of course, the the drop from the New York Times kind of uh, confirmed your sense that there was something a little bit strange happening. So why would DOJ want to meet with Epstein in person. Well, let's just or say- Or anybody for, you know, I mean, anyone, like, why right. do you bring somebody in physically yeah. instead of negotiating via email or over the phone or telecom right. or whatever? So we have a tendency to think about investigations and how they're conducted. We always think about the, you know, the high level people, like the target, like what's, what's the target or the potential defendant doing? What are they thinking? And then you think a little bit about like co-conspirators and co-conspirators becoming cooperators. But in reality, much of the investigator's time is spent uh, identifying, locating, and talking to just plain old witnesses, people who are not subjects of the investigation, but they have critical information that the investigators need to build their case. And with a witness, just imagine a a regular fact witness, what you would want to do is You'd go out, you'd find them at their home or their work, you'd talk to them, you'd convince them to come in for an interview. And they would then sit down with the agents and also the prosecutor to go over the scope of what they know so that the prosecutor gets an understanding for what can this person actually provide for my case. Wow. So this is sort of like cop shows where we see them like, why don't you come downtown and answer some questions? And yeah. then they go in and talk and to the investigators or the line prosecutors and, that's and right. figure out sort of what they know, right? Like that's the, probably the most common reason you bring somebody in. It absolutely is. And it also gives you an opportunity to flesh out if there's going to be any problems, like whether or not this person has any privilege that might prohibit them from talking about what you need them to talk about, things like that. So you would talk and it's friendly right? It doesn't mean that person's a cooperator working for the government, whatever. It's just friendly. They've, you've asked them to come in and they agree. So the next step is if they have the information that you need for your case, you would then bring that witness in front of the grand jury and you'd ask them the same questions again for the purpose of getting that testimony, quote unquote, locked in, right? So it's under okay. oath, it's preserved. And we have a really great recent modern day example of that with Michael Cohen going in a bunch of times exactly. to speak to the DA uh, at the DA's office or prosecutors at the DA's office. And then during the last week of that, you know, whole investigation, he goes before the grand jury once or twice uh, to to answer questions and then maybe gets brought back in as a rebuttal. But I don't think he did. Uh, right. I think it was somebody else. But so that's a very excellent. Uh, it's not federal, but it's a very good example of a friendly. Tell right. us what you he, know. He knows things. Yeah. They're important. He's coming in to provide them. And then it's like, yeah, we really need this information. We could need it in his testimony at trial. So then you get him locked in. That's all under the assumption that the interaction between the government and the witness, totally friendly, no coercion, no nothing. And why do you do that in person? Just because it's a much better... The FBI, yeah, you know, I mean, are experts, I know. And I'm probably some of these line prosecutors are experts at 
talking to and you know we yeah we we talked about this a lot in in the Mueller investigation with when uh, Comey came out with his book about hey we're way better at t- in, you know interrogating right. uh potential witnesses than you know this torture shit that you're trying to do um in stellar winds or whatever it's very much like you want to talk to them in the office, away from distractions, away from their family, away from their co- co-workers or other phones ringing and that sort of thing. It's a way to get their attention f- very focused. You have the opportunity to work with them on their recollection. Like they may think like, oh, I don't remember anything about X. And then you you can, through the cognitive interview techniques, you kind of go back and reset them, put their mind at, in a place in time when events took place, you prompt their uh, recollection with talking to them about things like, what were you wearing? What had you done that day before you saw the car accident? That kind of thing. And it kind of uh, brings back for people more detail about what happened. Also, crucially, it really allows the prosecutor to assess the witness and, and to make a determination as like, how good is their recollection? Are they credible? Do they have other problems in their past that might make them look like an, like a uh, not a very truthful witness? Because all that's important for the prosecutor to figure out, could I actually rely on this person at trial? For that, and do they seem cooperative or do they seem like a recalcitrant yeah. witness who's going to be a, you know, like a, a real problem? So that's where it gets interesting. And <laughs> you would start with a witness like that in the same way. You'd say, we'd like you to come in and talk to us. And sometimes a not 100% cooperative witness will come in and do that just for the purpose of gaining their own intelligence to understand what does the government want to know about? What kind of questions are they asking me? Who's running this thing? Who's who's the prosecutors, the agents I need to be concerned about? Ultimately, you if that person doesn't come in or they do come in and then they don't want to go to the grand jury, then you start to waive things like subpoenas and compulsory process over their head. Then you start talking about, well, we'll just bring you in front of the grand jury. Well, I'll let the grand jury sort out all the things that you know and things that you have done and criminal exposure that you might have. And that very kind of leveraged, I'm not going to call it coercion, but it seems coercive sometimes, uh, that process is how you end up with either a full-on hostile witness or someone who ultimately strikes a deal with the government. Okay, I'll come in, I'll testify, but I want immunity for X, Y, and Z. Okay, so this could be them just bringing Boris in to take his temperature and see what he knows. That's one possibility. But we already know last year the feds seized Boris Epstein's phone, and uh, he's he's been under at least some kind of investigation for a while, because in order to see somebody's phone, you have to have at least evidence that a crime more likely or than not occurred. That's right. Probable evidence cause. Of that on probable causes on that phone. So maybe this, uh, you know, if it's just a temperature taking thing, maybe it's a more advanced temperature taking uh, situation. But there are other reasons that yeah. you would bring a witness in like this, aren't there? There's there, you know, it's likely in this case with with the evidence off the phone and who knows what other evidence they might have from other witnesses, other documents, things they've subpoenaed that we're not even aware of. It's likely that the temperature on Boris is already high. You don't have to have him come in to explain what was on his phone so you understand it. You understand it. You know what's on there. You know the significance of it. But you might bring him in 
to walk him through what's on his phone to confront him with things. What'd you talk about in this call? Whose phone number is this? Of course, you know whose phone number it is. You're just trying to see if he answers the questions truthfully (laughs) and fully. And that is all part of this process of escalation, I'll call it, not coercion, escalation, where you're making it clear to him that like, he could be in the soup here. He could be in trouble. It's time to start thinking about uh, doing something other than uh, being shady and, and trying to dance with the other side. Yeah, and a couple a couple of things here. Like I said, they've got his phone. And, and that that is another reason to bring people into the DOJ offices, to show them evidence you don't want to send via email or to walk out or, you know, some sort of evidence that you that is protected, uh, just evidence that you don't want to get out uh, of the office. So you bring them in and show it to them, and then they can take notes and leave. Um, it's also um, of note that... Boris Epstein was part of the alleged conspiracy to obstruct justice in the documents case. He is the one who coordinated Corcoran and Christina Bob's letter of attestation that classified documents had all been handed over pursuant to that May 11th subpoena that they all went down and had a party about on June 3rd yep. at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, a month, a little two months before the the actual search warrant was executed. And so I could see them, and again, we're just spec. I'm just speculating here, but I could see them saying, "Oh, hey, we talked to Bob, we talked to Corcoran, we got Corcoran's notes now, and we've got transcripts of audio calls." Um, and uh, what do you have to say about this? Uh, well, you could be looking at an obstruction charge, unless you want to help us with the fraudulent elector scheme or something else. I mean, you know, again, part of. I guess to make it more general, part of this uh, entire escalation situation that you're talking about. That's right. You have no idea what he, what Jack Smith's team may have gotten from Christina Bob and or Evan Corcoran. It could be that, you know, uh, either one of them sat down in front of prosecutors and said, oh yeah, this whole thing was planned from the beginning. Or the plan was don't give up everything, keep all this stuff that Trump wanted. Okay, how'd you know the plan? Oh, well, but Boris told me. He called me on such and such a date and uh, said, here's what you do. Here's what you tell the feds, get them out of there and give them nothing. And that's, I'm completely speculating here, saying that just to create the hypothetical. But like, if that's the case, then you're at the point now in this investigation where, you know, you talk about flipping up, right? You always start um, at the operational level, and then you keep going up and up and elevating to targets of greater responsibility and greater significance. Um, It's entirely possible that they think of Boris in that way, that he is someone who is really calling the shots behind Corcoran and Bob and therefore is ultimately could be held responsible for the obstruction that they executed. And it could be the opposite. It could be that they have a fraudulent elector scheme uh, evidence that he participated in that conspiracy and they're using that to get documents information or Save America PAC information, which I want to talk a bit about as well. Those are generally the main reasons that you would bring somebody in. At the end of the day, it may be, and I would find this to be reasonable and logical, it may be that Jack Smith's team has concluded that Boris Epstein is very close to Donald Trump. In terms of the hierarchy of how decisions are made at Mar-a-Lago, you could be one heartbeat away from Trump if you have some good, some leverage, some sway over a guy like Epstein. So we'll yeah. see how that goes. Now, something else you would bring somebody in to talk to is is perhaps to hash out some privilege invocations. And something that's of note 
um, and you know I've been reporting on this for a while, we've talked about it, is that Boris Epstein, after the search warrant was executed on Mar-a-Lago, he immediately went back and changed his disposition, his relationship with the Save America PAC from consultant for the Trump campaign to legal. And presumably he did this, and he did it retroactively, saying all the work I've done for the Save America PAC in the past year and a half has been legal work, not consulting work. First of all, I don't think you can do that. I don't think you can change the, dip, the, the disposition of ma- and make yourself a lawyer retroactively uh, unless somebody writes you a, a letter saying, yeah, we, we go back. He's been giving me legal advice for, on this from the beginning. But it's pretty broad, the attorney-client privilege, and it usually applies. And somebody might say, okay, it's reasonable. A judge could say it's reasonable to assume you were acting and giving legal advice to the Save America PAC, even though you c- called yourself a consultant. But he went back and changed it to legal. So this could also be a meeting about not just taking the temperature or escalating or putting pressure on him, but it could be about to discuss what sort of privilege claims he might make if he's brought in and and maybe trying to hammer that out uh, prior to uh, if they're going to turn him into a witness or if they're going to turn him into yeah. a target or, you know, however they you know decide to go. They could be hashing out a lot of things. He was there for eight hours on Thursday and we are recording on Friday and as as of this recording, he came back for a second day today and is still there. Yeah. So that's why I think that this this is possible, but I find it to be unlikely because if if the if the sum total of the difference, let's say, or the discussion between Epstein and DOJ or Jack Smith's team right now is what he'll be able to testify about and what he can't testify about because of uh, claims of privilege. That's the kind of thing that the lawyers negotiate over the phone. You don't come in for two solid days of in-person meetings to work out a legal uh, technicality uh, like that. Right. And I, and I do right. agree. I just want to interrupt you really quick. I do. I agree with you on this because the way that Jack Smith has operated in the past is he brings you into the grand jury. And then if you invoke any kind of a privilege that's right. or take the fifth, he'll deal. He'll run across the hall to Boesberg or, you know, previously uh, yeah. Beryl Howell and deal with it there. Right. And that's generally yeah, how subpoenas work. Right. You show up, is. you invoke your privilege and then we discuss it. We don't sort of preempt any sort of privilege discussion. So, so that's right. And you would have to also prepare like a privilege log, which is like a list of all the things you have and, you, and a claim for specific privilege. Some of that would be done with Epstein's attorney's ahead of time, just so everybody knew like, okay, what ground is everybody going to be standing on? But then mm-hmm. you're right. You would actually, you'd say if, you know, they would call, you can imagine prosecutors calling Epstein's attorney and saying, we want to come in and interview him. And then Epstein's like, well, well, what do you want to ask him? And then they say, well, we're going to ask him about X, Y, and Z. Okay. Well, he's got attorney client privilege with all of these entities and these people. So he's not going to testify about any of that. So they would noodle that back and forth a little bit to see if they could come up with something that was worthwhile. And if they couldn't, bam, you hit him with a subpoena and it's like, okay, fine. You come in front of the grand jury, you make your claim of privilege, and then we'll litigate it quickly. So the uh, the almost 16 hours he has spent over the last two days indicates to you that this might be more of the accelerated sort of pressure stage, right? I, I think it's substantive for sure. You don't do two days over, you know, legal arguments between the sides that can't even make the final decision. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, it's definitely substantive. Whether they're really turning up the heat on him 
um, is possible is maybe that the heat has already worked and he's now in there testifying. There's just all kinds of possibilities, but um, I think it's it's serious. Yeah. Oh, and one last thing, one last reason you bring uh, people in to the DOJ's office is if you get a call and say, we're going to indict your guy, come in and you have one last chance to argue against indictment. Um, and I honestly don't have a temperature reading as to whether that could be this or not, other than does that take two days? Well, that's an interesting prospect. So typically when that happens, and um, to be fair about the unfairness in it all, <laughs> uh, it's really, that only happens to really like high profile people get that kind of, you know, last minute opportunity to kind of make their case to the prosecutors, try to convince them not to indict your client. But usually that conversation is only between the attorneys. You wouldn't actually bring the client in for that. Now, I say that with full disclosure here. Um, my attorneys did that in my case when I, there was a criminal investigation open on me for zero reason, but nevertheless, it hung out there for two years. My attorneys went in and talked to the prosecutors at every level, you know, many times tr explaining to them that there was no case here. And one of the times they said, well, we would really like to talk to your client. And um, this is like not something that any sane person who actually was facing criminal liability would ever do which is why I said, yeah, sure, I'll go in and talk to them. <laughs> so I went in to the prosecutor's office and I let them ask me whatever questions they wanted for like, I don't know, like three or four hours it seemed. It was a very uh, long conversation and, you know, that was it. So I guess I, just, I say that just to indicate that like there's a lot of possibilities here, but at the end of the day, what we know is Epstein is here in person, long sessions, those are substantive conversations about something, whether they're looking at him as a witness or a cooperator or a target. Um, you know, there's different likelihood on all those possibilities, but it's one of them. Yeah. And I, I think it's possible that they're not just talking about the fraudulent elector scheme in January 6th or just the documents case or obstruction in the documents case. They could also be talking about the Save America PAC fraud investigation, because, right. as I said, he, he retroactively made himself a legal advisor for that organization. And uh, we'll talk about this a little bit uh, later in the show, but a lot of lawyers are being paid out of that pack, uh, and they could be asking no questions about that, among other things. There's so many things that he has information about on so many cases across so many different crimes, potential crimes, alleged crimes, that I can see why he could be there for two days. No doubt. I mean, there was reporting just this week from CNN, Caitlin Poland's reported that uh, a number of... Trump associates and uh, staffers and people like that who have had their uh, legal representation paid for by the Save American Pact have now been interviewed by the special counsel team with questions about that representation and and how their lawyers treated them and the kinds of questions they asked them. And this is all getting at that topic that you and I have talked about a couple of times now, particularly with the example of Cassidy Hutchinson, who we assume, we don't know for sure, but we assume is probably in that group, that, you know, this Save America PAC paying for everybody's lawyers, is it really trying to provide representation to people who need it? Or is it an effort to control their testimony, to limit what they say, to keep them from cooperating fully with prosecutors, all in an overall effort to protect Trump. Um, you know, one guy I'd like to talk to to find out the answer to that question would be the 
uh, would be the uh, uh, self-designated and therefore retroactive lawyer for the Save America PAC, Boris Epstein. So all roads bring you back to Boris in one way or another. There's a lot of possibility there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, All right. We're going to be right back. We've got some breaking news uh, that came out on Friday to talk about and um, a couple other things. We're just going to take a quick break. Stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Welcome back. All right, there's some new explosive reporting coming out from Zachary Cohen at CNN. Uh, Cohen reports that in mid-January 2021, two men hired by former President Donald Trump's legal team discussed over text message what to do with data they obtained from a breached voting machine in a rural county in Georgia, including whether or not to use it as a part of an attempt to decertify the state's pending Senate runoff results. Wow. So this, yeah, this scheme involved Jim Penrose, Sidney Powell, Doug Logan of the Cyber Ninjas, uh, Rudy Giuliani, and the three people that actually executed the burglary of the voter data in Coffee County, Georgia. Yeah. And remember, we've seen like there's been some pop up reporting here and there of actual video footage. Yes. Of these two people going into the Coffee County voter uh, registrar's office. Somebody, you know, going onto the computer, downloading these data, handing them to these people. And now we have a, a connection to several 
criminal investigations. Uh, And in the text messages, which were obtained by CNN, um, which have not been previously reported, Penrose, Jim Penrose, references the upcoming certification of John Ossoff. So it's not just about Trump's 2020 election loss. Now we're talking about Purdue, David Purdue, who lost to Ossoff. Remember, because we found out in the wee morning hours of January 6th that Democrats seized control of the Senate because Ossoff and Warnock won their seats in the Georgia runoff. And then, you know, we were happy for like a couple hours seconds and then bam, <laughs> it was, uh, we were blindsided but, by, <laughs> by that. It was like really big news that got zero coverage because very quickly we were watching the disaster at the Capitol. Yeah. So Penrose basically texted, we only have until Saturday to decide if we're going to use this report to try to decertify the Senate runoff election or if we hold it for a bigger moment. Uh, the texts were obtained from someone familiar with the Fonnie Willis probe, by the way. And it's also being used possibly in the Michigan investigation. A lot of people forget because it's not getting the media coverage that Fulton County and Manhattan DA and Jack Smith are getting. There's a criminal investigation into election interference happening in Michigan, which is run by Gretchen Whitmer and Nestle and like all these uh, amazing Jocelyn Benson, amazing, amazing people. Uh, And so this has to also do with cyber ninjas, which ran that racket down in Arizona. Um, And ultimately waved the white flag at the end of it (laughs) that they found nothing. A hundred times, right? But so this seems to be have a lot to do with a state uh, election official um, and, you know, maybe attorney general or district attorney investigations. But this could also tie in to you're like, why are you bringing it up on the Jack podcast about Jack Smith? <laughs> this could tie into his investigation, couldn't it? Well, it could in a, on a number of different ways. We know that Jack Smith is examining and is interested in the broader effort to breach uh, or seize voting machines. We know this because of some of the questioning that Cuccinelli and others from DHS re- uh, received under a grand jury subpoena asking questions about did Trump ask, was he, was he, was it suggested to him to seize the voting machines? Who did that? Of course, we know that's Mike Flynn and uh, Sidney Powell. Um, so that's a piece of what they're looking at in those uh, crazy town meetings leading up to January 6th. Yeah. And Derek Lyons, who was a, a deputy White House counsel in the Trump administration, testified to the January 6th committee, we saw it on video, that Rudy Giuliani brought up Georgia voting machines in that infamous December 18th, 2020 Oval Office meeting, which is also being investigated. And, and well, I should say in conjunction with what you just mentioned with a seizure of voting machines. Like when we talked about this last week when Flynn and Sidney Powell, like you said, came in and said, here's a draft executive order. Right. Uh, You know, saying that you can seize voting machines. You're the king. You can do anything. Yeah. And everybody was like, no, you can't. That's stupid. No, you can't seize voting machines. Cuccinelli. And, you know, now there are all these people like probably even Hirschman uh, are are testifying. uh, uh, The Pats, I don't think they were there because they had been disinvited because, you know, lawyers with common sense, the normies, I guess, as they were (laughs) called, uh, were disinvited to these kinds of uh, meetings and emails and stuff. But Derek Lyons told them that, that that Giuliani brought up the Georgia voting machines in in that meeting. And here's his testimony. Lyons said, quote, his Rudy's point of view was that in some way the campaign, I believe, was going to be able to get access to voting machines in Georgia through means other than seizure. 
<laughs> and that, like stealing, and that evidence could be leveraged to gain access to additional machines, meaning, hey, look, we got this information. We don't know how, but look, we got this Georgia voting machine information. This is the pretext for seizing all voting machines or, you know, what uh, voter yeah. data or whatever to stop the election, which is what they were trying to do. So that is exactly the line straight to these Jack Smith investigations. Yeah, not to get into too much of a legal argument with the distinguished Mr. Lyons, but actually government actors, people acting on part of the government, going out and taking voting machine data, that's a seizure. It's an unlawful seizure, but it's definitely a seizure. Um, And I, I think it's also important to put this in the bigger context. We know that Jack Smith is looking very closely at the elector scheme, very closely at the the effort to delay the certification, um, and very closely at the pressure campaign on Pence, all that stuff. But mo- most of that has at least one thread that comes back to this idea of fraud, mm-hmm. that what many of these people did was committed a fraud against the United States of America, against the government, um, against the voters, in trying to tip back the results of this election, knowing that there was absolutely nothing to any of these arguments, there was nothing to this evidence. It was all essentially being used to deceive people to commit some level of fraud. And I think that's really where the foundation of whatever case he brings uh, against anyone, Trump or any of these other people, a lot of that case is going to be based on very basic claims of fraud. Yeah, for sure. And then to to go, uh, I'll read a little bit here from uh, Cohen's article uh, in CNN. In their hunt for evidence to support their baseless claims of voter fraud, after the 2020 election, Trump allies hired a little-known Texas-based security company called Allied Security Operations Group to investigate alleged voting machine irregularities in a handful of swing states that Trump lost, including Michigan, Arizona, and Georgia. A few weeks before the Coffee County burglary uh, in, in late December 2020, Trump allies were granted access to voting machines in Antrim County, Michigan. That's a county of about 24,000 people where Trump won handily. Same with Coffee County. It's very red. The team then took those data with the help of the Allied Security Operations Group, produced a report alleging Dominion voting system vulnerabilities. And that report, which has been widely debunked, formed the basis of a lawsuit filed by Sidney Powell, and that's that Antrim lawsuit that we've all seen. That suit was one of more than 60 suits filed, and and she's actually been sanctioned for it and had to go back to take some classes on how to write pleadings (laughs) uh, because of that. But still, Logan and Penrose, who were part of the team that produced the Antrim County report, considered using the Coffee County data in a similar way to challenge the Georgia Senate runoff. In their text from January 19th, the two men planned to create a report with the help of the Allied Security Operations Group's lawyer, a man named Charles Bundren, who was deeply involved in earlier efforts to gain access to voting systems. Quote, if you can draft a report for review on Friday morning with Charles Bundren, that would be the best, Penrose wrote to Logan. Uh, (laughs) And Bundren was part of the team enlisted by Trump's lawyers to find evidence of voter fraud after the 2020 election. He helped oversee the multi-state push to access voting machines on behalf of the Trump legal team. And he also had a hands-on role developing some of the most extreme options considered by Trump's inner circle, including helping draft those executive orders directing the military and the DHS to seize voting machines. So this guy is, and this Coffee County situation, 
are directly tied to these Flynn, Sidney Powell voting yep. machine seizure executive orders uh, that were laughed out of the Oval Office by people who know what they're talking about on December 18th. Completely. And I think evidence like this really uh, ties it all together in a uh, vivid and effective way for prosecutors. It's one thing to say, like, the fraudulent elector scheme is ultimately an effort to deceive. And that's great. We understand what that means. But at trial, you have to be prepared to go down in the weeds and show the chain of custody. And this person told this person what to do. That person went and did it. You know, you have to be able to really build this thing brick by brick. Mm-hmm. And in this case, that's that's clearly kind of what they're adding here yeah. with this text exchange between uh, between these guys about Georgia. Yeah. And further, Arizona was going to use the allied security people for their report, the Bundren guy. Uh, but because of the backlash on the Antrim County, the scrutiny over the Antrim report, uh, Arizona opted for a different firm to investigate their uh you know, <laughs> false claims of election voter fraud called cyber ninjas. Bring in the cyber ninjas. Uh, but Bundren remained involved in that process. The guy from ASOG and uh, the uh, Allied Solutions or Allied Security yep. Operations uh, and coordinated directly. They all coordinated as part of this. And he also worked with fellow ASOG member, Allied uh, Security member, Phil Waldron. He's a retired army colonel who was part of Giuliani's team that helped write up that entire slideshow on how to pressure Pence to throw out the electoral votes. That's right. So That's this right. is all <laughs> like, <laughs> like <laughs> the overlaps and the cross currents are just like all very hard to keep track of. But that's why we're here, right? We're we're shedding a little light on the whole thing. But yes. fascinating, really, yeah. really good stuff. Yeah, absolutely incredible how everything is tied together and you know connect the dots. La 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 la. <laughs> Um, and that's what we're doing. I am Charlie uh, from Always Sunny in front of my murder board uh, talking about how all these things mix together. And Zachary Cohen at CNN did an excellent job of, of writing this up. Uh, so I yes, highly, does. highly recommend you check that out. All right. We're going to take one more quick break and then we've got some more stuff to talk about. Stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, 
show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is lawyers, guns, and money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Hey, everybody, welcome back. So we spent a great part of the show in the first segment in the A block there talking about uh, Epstein, Boris Epstein, and how he was, you know, backbenched or slowly retreating from working on Trump's legal team. You know, like you said, it's like you're being it's like pregnancy. You're either on the team or you're not. Um, and he's more like Homer Simpson slowly backing into the shrubbery. <laughs> But we do have somebody also on Trump's legal team who has made a clean break uh, with the legal team that he was working on, and that's Evan Corcoran. We know the story. We know the backstory um, that he came in and testified previously to the grand jury. He invoked some attorney-client privilege, and then uh, Jack Smith's team overcame that invocation of attorney-client privilege using the crime-fraud exception. And then he, Corcoran, had to come back in and testify to what he knows and also hand over some notes and, and invoices. Invoices is interesting. Yep. Um, uh, and, and things like that. So then all of a sudden we hear it. Because a, a, a year ago when Bob withdrew as legal counsel on the documents case and lawyered up, I was like, all right, your turn, Corcoran. I mean, you guys are witnesses yeah. in this case. Um, well, she was very she was very forward leaning about that actually. She uh -huh. immediately pulled the ripcord, got a lawyer, and started meeting with DOJ, which is the smart thing to do under the circumstances if you're thinking along the lines of staying out of jail and retaining <laughs> your law license. Yeah. So Corcoran just now uh has uh, recused, I guess, I'm not sure, left the legal team uh and was, you know, brought in to testify again uh to to the to the committee. Now it or not the committee, the um, federal grand jury. Uh, sorry, so many investigations that uh, I, can't, I can't keep the ball straight. Um, I think this is interesting because the, it, they, he, he says that it was his law firm that made him do it, right? The law firm was like, we don't want to, you can't be part of that and part of this at the same time. But then why didn't they do that when he testified before? He, or did he, or did yeah. he, or did they? You know, I hard to say. Uh, that sounds a little bit to me like him kind of put the putting the blame on the decision on someone else. Kind of like you know, my parents won't let me. Uh, so <laughs> that's hard hard to know. But it's also impossible. Like in in the regular regular world of litigation, and even the regular world of criminal defense, the idea that your attorney would end up having to go before the grand jury and essentially testify against you is almost unheard of. It's so rare. That happened here. And the idea that you would then, you would then continue having that person represent you, it's just, that's the time to find a new attorney. I, I mean, I, it's, uh, it's insane. Unless there's none left. 
There's not any lawyers left left that are willing to take your case for less than a $3 million upfront cash retainer. Or, or unless you have some other reason for wanting to remain connected to your, I guess, former kind of still current attorney who testified against you. And that would be to keep tabs on what's going on with that guy and who's he actually meeting with and what's he saying about me and and uh, let's keep him under the tent just for now. Yeah, and before this all happened, Corcoran made a trip up uh, to talk to prosecutors at the Department of Justice and we weren't sure what that meeting was about uh, except that it had to do with uh, the documents case. And obviously, I think Corcoran is more steeped in the documents case, less like an uh, Epstein uh, right. who art who was one of the architects of the fraudulent lecture scheme uh architect of the letter the attestation letter in the documents case uh architect like save yeah. america pack legal counsel <laughs> his fingerprints are like, on everything every single criminal investigation you can think of he's part of but corcoran here is the guy who wrote the letter uh that that um christina bob signed uh, and Christina Bob insisted on having edits be made to that letter to say, to the best of my knowledge, we've handed over all the documents pursuant to the subpoena issued May 11th, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so that he, I think his feet are firmly planted in the old documents case. Um, yeah. But he would be one of the last witnesses. Um, and, you know, he's he's interviewed Jack Smith. Uh, has They've talked to and subpoenaed, I should say, not just interviewed, but subpoenaed. More than two dozen witnesses just in the documents case alone. Uh, and Corcoran and Boris would be the last two. It could very well be. They could very well be. They're certainly not on the front end of your witness list. You never really know what those folks, if in fact they're coming in and they're testifying, um, you know, completely, you never know what they're going to say. And they could bring someone up or mention something that then sends you back out scurrying with another grand jury subpoena. That's the way... <laughs> grand jury investigations work. But um, yeah, it's hard to imagine that there's a whole boatload of additional people that need to be talked to, at least on the documents case. Yeah. And that might be why Chris Kyes and uh, Jim Trusty were brought in because Trump was like, well, eventually all my lawyers are going to be witnesses. So I need two attorneys that didn't know me until now uh, to, <laughs> to come in <laughs> who, can't, who can't be called as witnesses against me, except maybe even in obstruction of justice in other ways. Um All right. So we'll see what happens with Corcoran. We'll see what happens with Epstein. Uh, As soon as we get more information, we'll be able to talk to you about that probably on the next episode of Jack. But interesting. We know this week, and and this isn't a Jack Smith story, but Fox and Dominion have settled their uh, defamation case for $787.5 million, half of what was initially asked, and apparently no apology. You know, they don't have to admit on air that they did anything wrong. Um, and I have many, many feelings about that, but what I want to talk to you about today that has to do with the Jack Smith investigation is a little interview that a lawyer for one Abby Grossman, who is a former producer at Fox for the Bartiromo show, she was fired, uh, and because she filed a lawsuit saying that those, those Fox lawyers coerced her testimony, told her to not recall things that she recalled, and, uh, also that she had recordings and more evidence that were suppressed by Fox lawyers that she wanted to come forward with. And that evidence, including uh, not just that evidence, but also uh, the fact that Fox lied to the court about Rupert Murdoch 
being an executive at the Fox News News yep. versus the Fox Corp uh, prompted the judge in that case to appoint a special master to review uh, and investigate you know, wrongdoing by Fox's lawyers. Now, that has dissolved because of this settlement, which I'm bummed about, would have loved to have seen. Yeah, and it would probably be Barbara Jones again. She's like everybody's favorite special master these days. Um, these days, I mean, in the last five years. And uh, I would have loved to have seen that uh, go through to uh, fruition. But what did that lawyer tell Ari Melber, Andy? Well, the lawyer for Abby Grossman tells Ari Melber that multiple law enforcement agencies contacted them about obtaining the recordings they had of the Fox News anchors. So this, of course... Causes us to wonder, gee, what could those law enforcement agencies be? And would one of them be the special counsel's office? Yeah, because, you know, at first I was like, why? You know, first of all, defamation, you know, there wouldn't be a criminal case against Fox, could there? No, I I doubt it. But. I doubt it. You know, I mean, I did talk. I doubt it, too. I did talk a little bit about it with Pete Strzok, who said, well, you know, I mean, if if they were giving uh, in-kind campaign contributions by coordinating messaging with the Trump campaign, perhaps, but that's real hard uh, to prove. Yeah, there's a lot easier campaign finance violation cases that don't get brought. Um, Right. I think that one would be tough. But more importantly, um, there's recordings of Rudy saying they don't have any evidence of voter machine fraud, at least, quote, not yet. Um, and there could be some coordinated messages with people in the Trump circles saying that they know they lost the election and that it was all BS, right? Because that was the big lie that, that, that yeah. the, the, the Dominion was trying to prove. Uh, and they did prove. It was ruled by the judge before the settlement happened that these were fa- false, falsities. They were, they were lies. Um, this misinformation about the voting machines, and that could be uh, of of keen interest to Jack Smith, considering everything we've talked about in today's show about his investigation into the seizure of voting machines. I I think that's possible. I think um, it's also let's not let's not forget that some Fox uh, uh, figures on-air talent, things like that, were actually in contact with Trump during the period that we know Jack Smith is most interested in. Um, that mm-hmm. that lead-up to January 6th and the weeks after the election and uh, before the 6th. So it's possible that these they believe these recordings would be relevant um, to testimony they may already have or may be seeking from these people, uh, people like Sean Hannity and others who we know we're in direct contact with Trump. And that testimony could be very important to proving this really elemental fact, which is Trump's intent. What did he actually believe at that time? This goes back to a point you and I have talked about probably every week. One of Trump's main defenses will light, if in fact he's, he's indicted and goes to trial, will likely be he will claim that he legitimately believed that the election had been stolen from him and therefore, the efforts that he took were not fraudulent or deceptive. It was just an effort to restore the uh, his rightful victory. can't believe I just heard myself say that. But nevertheless, <laughs> um, all of this evidence about things that people told him, whether it's his own lawyers, the White House lawyers, his own hired uh, uh, forensics company that produced a report that said, yeah, no fraud here either. Um, all, that's just a mountain of evidence 
to contradict a defense like that. So to show the jury that it's really unreasonable, it would have been unreasonable for a defendant Trump to not understand that there was no fraud in the election. Yeah. And I mean, there's, <laughs> there's, first of all, like, there's a bunch of stuff that we didn't get to see. There was evidence that we didn't get to see in the Dominion defamation case that were communications between Fox News anchors and uh, all sorts of other people and executives and stuff like That's that. That's right. Now, um, and we still have a case out there pending um, that is going to be deciding uh, or at least commenting on uh, or considering the definition of corrupt intent as it relates to Title 18 uh, section 1512C2, obstructing an official proceeding, which is uh, one of the crimes I assume that Jack Smith is probably looking at with regard to Trump. So that's coming out in May. It's, it's different from the one we just had, right? That was, that, wasn't, well, that was only looking at whether C1 and C2 were married and dependent upon right. each other. This other one, and the reason that they didn't uh, change the law in this more recent ruling that came out, uh, is that they... They are going to be deciding because uh, somebody filed to dismiss the charges right. on on the uh, definition of corrupt intent. That'll be decided. I don't think the law is going to change. I don't think they're going to rewrite the boundaries of what corrupt intent is. And Jack Smith will have always had to prove corrupt intent. But Andy, have you ever gotten evidence from uh, discovery in a civil case? I know we did it. The, the one that stands out in my head is uh, the guy named I can't remember his first name, but I remember his last name was Cock. And uh, he wanted to be secretary of the army and Manafort, you know, we have David Pecker, we have the cock guy. Okay, I, I got it. I'm he with was you. A, yep. He was a banker who gave a quarter of their, you know, balance sheet to Manafort to get him to have Trump make him secretary of the army. It was a bribery thing. And the DOJ uh, was able to get the Mueller team, I believe, was able to get a ton of information because of a divorce proceeding. Uh, with cock. And so have you ever reached into a civil proceeding? What, when can you do that? Can you do it after discovery's closed? Can you do it after the resolution of the case? Can you do it any time to reach in for all of that discovery that was brought? And is it legal to get all of the discovery that was brought in a civil case? You know, these are all really good questions. And uh, having spent my life on the criminal side, not the civil side, I'm not sure I have all the answers here. But I've never had I never had to do that in any of my criminal investigations to reach into a, a civil case, you know, chasing around uh, Russian OC figures and terrorists. They're they were not uh, uh, prolific litigators on the civil side, I guess, the ones that I had. But um, it's essentially like any other uh, information. And in the course of a criminal investigation, particularly a grand jury investigation, as soon as you know it exists and you know who the custodian of those records is, obviously, um, who has possession and control of those sorts of records, you can just hit them with a grand jury subpoena. Now, you might have a fight on your hands. Sometimes um, at the conclusion of if – a civil, if a civil case is resolved through a settlement, sometimes uh, the sides will make uh, as a part of that settlement – They'll require each side to destroy the evidence that the other one provided or return it or what have you. They, they'll, um, I don't be, think uh, that happened here, though, because this lawyer said we're, we're doing that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's there, I think it's possible 
in more cases than not. But I think Fox um, could sue to block that discovery from going to the Department of Justice, and we might see a legal battle there. They could try. Um, but what I'd, likely the, the government will do is they'll just serve the subpoena directly on Fox. Hey, you're a business. You keep these records as a part of your business uh, enterprise, and we want them. And so you'd, you'd have a fight on your hands, but uh, I don't think it's it's safe to say that pretty much anything you know about can fall within the scope of what you can try to get as a part of the grand jury investigation. Word. By the way, it was Stephen Koch, and uh, he was sentenced to a year and a day in prison for that bribery scheme. There you go. Um, all right. Um, let's uh, take some listener questions. Sure. Yeah. So the listener questions this week were pretty good. I found uh, two, actually, that both go to the same questions of timing. Okay. So our first question comes from Kevin. And Kevin says, I know that Trump has tried to apply this artificial timeline for him to be charged, at least federally, the closer to the primaries, thinking that much more of a stink will be raised by his retrumplicans. Is that going to stop Mr. Smith from bringing at least the documents case, especially if he uses the fact that he has other cases open on him? I really don't think this should matter, but does Jack or Merrick Garland? I really hope not. Thanks and great podcast. So um, it's a good question because it raises this issue that's been concerning me a lot lately, which is as we get deeper and deeper into the calendar and therefore deeper into the election season, how is that going to influence what Jack Smith decides to do? So first of all, it's not relevant, you know, the same, the reason that kept Mueller from indicting anyone, that OLC, that DOJ OLC policy that you cannot indict a sitting president is obviously not relevant here because Trump is not a sitting president. But what might be relevant is the general DOJ policy that you shall, thou shalt not take uh, overt um, actions in the period just before an election. Now, that period is not particularly clearly defined. Some people at DOJ, if you ask them, they'd say that's two months. Some people would say it's three months. It's generally, I think most people would say somewhere between 60 and 90 days before the election. So that basically defines, I think, the, the runway that Jack Smith has to deal with. So and I, I think, think those can... are, though, are also overt investigatory steps, right? Like if you've already indicted, there's no rule in the judiciary system that says we have to postpone a trial. However, I could no, see no. a lawsuit coming from Donald Trump saying you're interfering with my ability to right. campaign, uh, et cetera. And we've never seen anything like that. It might have to be litigated. But, you know, Garland was asked point blank, does it matter that he's running for office? Will that influence your decisions at all? And he said, no, that right. has absolutely nothing to do with any decision I'm going to make. And I can't ma imagine that Jack Smith would be more conservative than Garland on this. Matter. No, no. And, and I, I do think that the um, take no action in the lead up to an election policy would prohibit Jack Smith from indicting Trump in that period. So he's got to, oh, sure, if he's yeah. going to indict him, he's got to get that done before whatever, 60 or 90 days before the election. But once it's done, it's done. I, I don't think there's any prohibition to going forward with that indictment in the normal course of business, if whether it's a, a trial or whatever, because f the reason we've discussed before, it's different. You know, when you indict, trying to indict a sitting president, you're arguably uh, denying the people, the country, 
the good and uh, honest services of their president because you're throwing this massive distraction uh, on his plate. That doesn't apply when people have had the choice, do I vote for a guy who's under indictment or do I not? That's how, I mean, I don't, look, I say this, so it's not like it's a, a resolved issue. I don't think that it's ever quite been in this situation before, but that's my guess of how they would justify it. And if, and if for some reason, I don't see this being the case, but if for some reason Jack Smith has not indicted Donald Trump, or at least made a charging decision about Donald Trump before the 60-day window before the election, if for some reason that hasn't happened and we elect, re-elect Joe Biden, then everything just resumes as normal Game after on. that. Game on. There's if, no, nothing if a Republican wins, then the investigations will probably end or be end. stifled. Or they, <laughs> but I, I guarantee you they will just be ended. Mm-hmm. And you have to remember, though, that even if indictments and convictions happen before the election, if a Republican wins, they're going to pardon everybody for these Jack Smith federal crimes that are that are brought up. So I still don't see a clock. The only thing is, is that you have to make sure a Republican doesn't win in 2024 and take over the White House and stop everything because they'll either stop it by stopping the investigation or stop it by pardoning everybody if it's already been done. And that is the case whether or not they Trump was indicted a year ago or, you know, or or next year. It doesn't matter. You could even stop an investigation by just issuing preemptive pardons. Like you don't even have to be charged to receive a pardon that keeps you from being charged. Bannon. No, yeah, Bannon exactly. was charged. But no, he was charged. Yeah, but, he was charged. you know, that's all those, you know, Matt Gates and all of his friends who were asking for pardons at the end of the last uh, administration. Okay, <laughs> so second question, same basic theme, comes to us from Janice. Janice says, if Trump is federally charged in three separate cases, meaning January 6th, the documents case, and wire fraud, uh, would there be three separate trials or would any of them be collapsed? I think that it's it's a really good question. There's kind of a division of opinion. I mean, I think most people think of it as two cases, not three. Basically, the documents case and then the case of everything that's connected to January 6th, whatever comes out of that, uh, if anything. Yeah, I would kind of consolidate the wire fraud with the fraudulent elector scheme because as we were just talking about with that voter machine thing and how that has to do with both. Right. It's all part of the same mess. Yeah. Uh, it all arises from the same basic facts. So that's that's certainly uh, arguably one possible case that could go forward. And then you have the documents case. It's arguably uh, separate. Some um, folks think that it's unlikely that Jack Smith wouldn't even bring an indictment unless he addresses all of that stuff in one indictment. I'm not so sure about that. But even if, let's say, the documents case gets indicted and then January 6th is ready, you could supersede the existing indictment with the January 6th-related questions, possibly, if you could make the argument that they're close enough related, um, and bring them all together at one time. Uh, But I I think the more likely... uh, resolution is those two two cases get indicted separately and then proceed down their own tracks uh, on separate timelines. Yeah, I agree. That's exactly how I, I see it going down as well. So yeah, but the question remains is, does he, if he's ready to go on the documents case, does he wait until he's ready to go and make a charging decision on the January 6th case? Or does he, because, you know, sometimes that prosecutorial discretion uh, brain has to look at yeah. everything ahead of you to decide what you're going to charge. 
Um, so I don't know. I don't know if he's going to do that or not. I don't, I tend, I'm with you. I tend to think he won't. I think if he's got the documents case, he'll charge the documents case, start the speedy trial clock on that sucker, and then, you know, go forward with a separate, uh, uh, batch of indictments on, on January 6th, um, which may or may not include the president. You know, I, Eastman could be the tallest hog in the trough that gets taken down on that case if, if there's not enough evidence there. So, that's I tend to agree with you on that. Um, and I think they're both pretty close to being wrapped up because you've got Pence in the January 6th case is the next guy coming in. And you've got uh, Corcoran in the documents case and, and Epstein in all of it. And yeah, that, we're at the tippy top. Still, wait, still waiting to see Mark Meadows show up somewhere. But, uh, you know, <laughs> keep your fingers crossed. <laughs> there's, there's always a little time left. Well, that. he's been ordered um, as part of the Ocho Nostra. To come in. Uh, And so I'm assuming he would come in before Pence would. I'm assuming everybody would come in before Pence would. Uh, But who who knows? Who knows? Who knows? We'll see. We'll see. Well, excellent show. Great conversation. Thank you so much. Um, Once we get all this information, we'll put it out. You know, we talk about this on the Daily Beans Daily. We go in depth here on the Jack podcast. Uh, Listen and uh, subscribe. And if you want to be a, a patron of this podcast and get these episodes ad free you can do that by going to patreon.com slash muller she wrote so thank you very much to our patrons who are listening right now you make this show possible um any final thoughts before we take off for the week no i i had i stumbled across one thing that it deserves i think a very brief mention which is uh it was good to see that judicial watch here's uh our right-wing media uh outlet judicial watch uh, announced on there in a in a release today that they had failed in their effort to uh, FOIA the names and identities of all those people associated with the Jack Smith special counsel team. So uh, they'd filed apparently on December 9th uh, for all staff rosters, phone lists, or similar records. And on April 12th, the Justice Department said that under exceptions 6 and 7A of FOIA, there will be no soup for judicial watch at this trough. So uh, I think that's a great move by DOJ. It definitely goes in that category of learning from uh, past uh, mistakes. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because we knew all of the Mueller team, uh, you know, the 16 angry Democrats or whatever. And I I guess maybe Jack Smith was like, I don't want to be labeled the 42 angry (laughs) liberal whatever Middle of the rotors, <laughs> professional <laughs> prosecutors. I don't know. Um, yeah, and so, I think, yeah, I think that's really a good move. Having seen how people like Tom Fitton and Judicial Watch just spent, a, you know, a year or more relentlessly attacking the professionals that were associated with that team. That's right. It's um, Tom Fitton. He's the guy who yeah. has been advising Donald to not give back the documents, right? That's right. Non-lawyer that's exactly right. Tom Fitton. That's exactly right. So I would have been uh, remiss had I not pointed out uh, Tom's failure today. So happy to have done that. Yay. I love it when Tom Fitton loses. There you go. It's always a good, it's always going to work. But I think that means it's going to be a good weekend. uh, And we won't have six more weeks of winter when Tom (laughs) Fitton's FOIA request fails. Um, Fitton FOIA failure. uh, (laughs) Foiled again by Fitton. That's got some some legs to it. (laughs) I will. I'll go work on that alliteration. But. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up, because I know we talked about in episodes early on what are some of the lessons that could be taken forward in the Jack Smith. We have the benefit of a full special counsel investigation into Trump specifically in the Mueller investigation, and and that's a good lesson learned. It reminds me of why Judge Kaplan, Judge Lewis Kaplan, anonymized the jury in the E. Jean Carroll case, because it is clear and evident 
um, mountains of evidence that Trump and his team and his allies will target you go and after go after him, you. For sure. Mm-hmm. For absolutely sure. That's how they roll, for sure. The fit and foyer. All right. Anyway, thank you so much, everybody, for listening. We'll be back next week. I've been Allison Gill. And I'm Andy McCabe. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, Welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.